Good morning. Our Bible reading for today is taken from the book of Ezra, chapters 9, 1 to chapter 10, verse 17, on page 473 on your Bible, and you may also refer to the screen on top. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled the halt hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the fam of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord, my God, and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because out our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great because of our sins. We and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in living as a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you have given through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. 
while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shekaniah, son of Jehiel, in one of the descendants of Elam, and said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and he took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohananan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water, because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days of the men of Judah, Benjamin, and gathered in Jerusalem, and on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives." The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jazeiah, son of Tikva, supported by Meshulam and Shabetai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Thank you, Bing, and good morning, everyone. My name's Jamie, if we haven't met yet. Well, here's a quote from a leading expert on Ezra. The treatment described in these two chapters of the problem of mixed marriages is among the least attractive parts of Ezra Nehemiah, if not the whole Old Testament. So there's a motivational quote for your Sunday morning. 
I've loved getting to preach through Ezra, but I do confess this is the sermon that I've been dreading the whole way along. Not only does it confront us with the idea that God gets a say over who we marry, that's hard enough. What are we meant to think of Ezra's call to send away the wives from different racial backgrounds? It's a passage that hits nerves for sure. And as we think about these words, there will be some of us here who are happily married, others not so happily. There are dear sisters and brothers among us who long for their spouse to know Jesus. There are people wondering if Jesus is worth knowing. Many have felt the pain of divorce. Others are wondering who they might marry. Others still know the ache of not being married and wanting to be. And that's just scratching the surface, hey. Today we'll be asking, with all those real-life complexities, what does it look like to tremble before a God who is always true and good? And this passage has great news and great challenges for us. But can I say up front, uh, it's more than likely that this sermon won't give you all the answers you may need. It might start some conversations that need to keep going. And just as a quick spoiler, um, I'll be saying today that God is not calling Christians to leave their spouse um, if they're not a believer. I hope that's a little reassuring. But I also hope to show that that's not a cop-out reading of this passage, but that it comes from letting Scripture be its own interpreter. Christians through the ages have shared a conviction that the books of the Bible, with all their styles and authors, all come from the one God telling one big story. So this week is a good chance to follow Ezra's own philosophy that we heard about from Adam and read this part of scripture in the context of the whole Bible. So on that note, here we are at the end of a book of triumph, finishing on a very sour note. Time and again, we've seen God deliver on his promise to gather a people to himself No Persian king, no government bureaucrat has been able to slow him down. God has given his people a temple again and a leader, Ezra, to teach them. It seems that all the problems out there are solved. But today it's clear that there's still that problem in here. The problem of a divided heart. Do you know what that's like? That's what we find at the end of Ezra. So let's dive in and and think about what the issue is all about. And then we'll think about the response. And I'm keen for us to finish thinking about the heart behind it all. So those points are there on your outline. Point one, Ezra's been teaching the Bible in Jerusalem for a few months now. And as it tends to go, the Bible has shed some light on some issues There's no mention of Ezra telling the people what their issue is. Rather, he's taught the Old Testament and the people come to him convicted. Let's look again at the start at verse 1. 
After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. These leaders have recently heard the warning from back earlier in the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 7, for God's people not to marry those who were then living in the Promised Land, including most of the nations listed in Ezra. And the issue in Deuteronomy isn't race. It's this. If they marry the people living in those lands... They will turn your children away from following me to serve their gods. God has saved this people and he longs for them to find life in him alone. Who they choose to marry will affect their ability to do that. Because who you love, who you share your life and resources with, massively shapes how you think about life. In the history of God's people, the most famous example of this going pear-shaped happened to arguably their best king, Solomon, who faithfully built that first temple so that people could meet with God. In his later days, it was his heart that led him astray. He loved and married women from many of the places listed here. The Bible records, and I think I've got this on a slide, that as he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. The king who God called his own son started worshipping other gods. And now, with this second temple freshly built, the leaders realise that history could well repeat. The human heart hasn't changed, Those nations weren't necessarily still around, but once again, God's people are a minority among followers of other gods who were known for the same kinds of detestable practices, practices like incest and child sacrifice. Now, there's at least one positive example in the Bible of an Israelite, one of God's chosen people, marrying a non-Israelite. The one that comes to my mind is Ruth, the Moabitess. She was a woman of faith. She converted to follow Israel's God, married a Jewish man, and became the great-grandma of King David. It's a great story. But it's clear that that's not what's happening here in Ezra's day. God's people have married those who live for other gods, bought into their practices... And it's likely that some have divorced their Jewish wives to do so. They haven't kept themselves separate. They've actively turned away. And the leaders have been blazing that trail. After all God has done to bring them out of slavery again, how must he feel? Watching them give their hearts to other people instead of him. God's people were meant to show God's holiness to the world so that people of all nations might be blessed. 
How are all the nations of the world going to see God's goodness in his people if they look exactly like everyone else? It's a bit like the butter knife situation here at the church office. We have a celiac on our staff team and our senior pastor, Matt. So when we get together and have lunch at the office, there's a tub of butter and a knife for the things with gluten and then a gluten-free tub with its own special knife. And if hypothetically a new member of the staff team were to pick up said knife and start making for the glutinous tub, there is an obvious, quick and reasonable response. Wait, wait. (laughs) You can't use it for that. That knife is holy. (laughs) It's a somewhat trivial example, but it is a picture of holiness, of being set apart for a particular purpose. Now that I've learned about that knife, (laughs) I have that reaction too. It's an everyday example, but if I can learn to have such an obvious, quick response to it, Why don't I think twice when I buy into the things of this world that God has called me to be set apart from? This is a massive crossroads for God's people here in Ezra. Their Bible study has exposed that they haven't been living as God's holy people. They've been unfaithful to him. Now, as I flagged before, this isn't the point where I point the finger at anyone who is married to someone who is not a Christian. That's just not where the Bible lands. And if that's you today, you'll know much better than I the challenges of loving and sharing your life with someone who doesn't follow the same Lord. And despite those challenges, you're here today. And I thank God that you are as one of his people I do think, though, that these opening verses raise a challenge for those in our church family who might be in a position to choose who you might marry, or maybe one day when you're older. Who you choose to marry, if you get the opportunity, will have a massive impact on your capacity to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Being single has many of its own challenges. Promising to be devoted to someone other than Jesus isn't one of them. So if you do get married, let it be to someone who will help you walk with Jesus. And 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in the New Testament would point us in the same direction. I remember being at a Christian mate's wedding a few years ago, and in the speeches, his mum, who I look look up to heaps, said... We've always told our kids we don't care who you marry, as long as they're Christian and they're kind. I reckon that's gold. Ezra warns us, please don't devote yourself to somebody who will ask you to divide your heart. Not that anyone would ask that out loud, at least not while you're dating, But it's hard enough to let Jesus sit on the throne of your life as an individual or married to another Christian. Do you want to make it even harder by devoting yourself to somebody who may be great in every way, but who lives for another God?
I don't say this because church is an in club and we don't want outsiders marrying in. We love people who don't know Jesus yet. But how will anyone be persuaded that following him makes a difference if Christians live just like everyone else? And can I say, in our culture, I think the area of love, sex and marriage may be one of the most costly areas to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. I think of a dear sister in Christ some years ago. As she learned about Jesus, she realized that she and her long-term boyfriend were not on the same page and eventually came to the heartbreaking decision to end that relationship. It was awful to see how much that cost her. And yet, I also saw her find that she was complete in Christ and cared for by Christ's people. By contrast, I think of how many friends I've seen in my short ministry career who decided that they were the exception, who said they could pursue Jesus and someone who didn't, and who not long after walked away from their faith and bought into their dream relationship instead. Our hearts are prone to wander, aren't they? So how did Ezra and his leaders respond in their day? I've called our second point radical, unrepeatable repentance. After much trembling and grieving, they reached this decision. Have a look at verse 9 of chapter 10. On the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. It's one of those moments where the weather just matches the mood perfectly. Shivering in the winter rain, thinking about how you've strayed from your Lord, waiting to hear the godly counsel of your leader. Verse 10, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. In all the trembling that's been involved in preparing this sermon, it's this bit of the passage that's caused me the most stress. Because it feels so wrong, not only on a gut level, but it seems at odds with other parts of the Bible. When it comes to unappealing bits of the Bible, the best approach is not to run away, but to wrestle. So let's remember the original context of this book. God's promises to Israel were for the whole world through Abraham's family line. At this stage in history, that line is hanging by a thread. They've been exiled, now returned, not as a great nation, but a little subculture. They're rediscovering the goodness of living as God's people, which includes that repeated call not to buy into the ways of the world around them. So they're at this crossroads. Are they going to start living out their identity, or will they blend in and fizzle out? Is it a one-generation thing, or are the kids going to go on with it? 
in that context, this radical decision to send these wives away in order to become distinct from the peoples around them makes sense. The other thing that encourages us to listen to this hard passage is how Ezra himself has been presented to us as a leader of integrity, who leads not by coercion, but by conviction, applying the Bible to that moment with many tears and prayers. So if there's something right about this response that we need to hear, what is it? It's that repentance involves turning away, confessing and actively turning your back on unfaithfulness. That doesn't mean we have to like this story. I mean, what happened to these wives? This decision in the rain is no triumph because there is no good solution here. These Israelites can either send away their wives with the tragic results or they can continue to live together following the detestable practices of the world around them, worshipping the moon and stars and forgetting the Lord. For this moment in history, Ezra chose the lesser of two evils. The men's unfaithfulness in this area had horrible ripple effects on their wives, their children, the rest of the crowd gathered there. Even when forgiven by God, these sins will affect the rest of all of the above's lives. Sin has consequences. It affects so many people. Radical, unrepeatable repentance. Unrepeatable because Jesus makes a difference to marriage. Which is why we need to read this in the context of the big story. Jesus, born in Abraham's line, succeeded where Israel failed. He lived the only perfectly holy life. And through his cross and empty tomb, he brings the blessing of God to every race. His holiness isn't compromised when he touches us. Instead, he makes us holy. Under his good leadership, which Ezra's foreshadows, the importance of godliness in marriage only goes up because we find it's a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. All that means that when Paul in the New Testament taught on marriage between believers and those who don't believe, cultural background doesn't even come into it. Here's what he says. I've got it up on the slide, I think. Thanks, Wes. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not yet a, not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified or made holy through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He's not talking about choosing a marriage partner. But if you are married to someone who doesn't believe, don't send them away. 
Because in Christ, there is another way. So here is a word to those who are married to someone who is not yet a believer. Or perhaps to someone who is struggling in their faith. Your holiness in your family makes such a difference. The difficult decisions you make to be faithful are a powerful witness to your family and seen by your father. You can't control the outcome of that. But Jesus asks you to love your family in a way that is distinctly shaped by him. Couples who are both believers need that too. Let's be honest, you can be a good influence on each other or not so much. Keep putting Jesus first. And for all of us, what's clear in Ezra is that there's something more important than what's normal in the world. Belonging to Jesus. So a word to all of us. If the big issue is in this passage is unfaithfulness, we need to ask ourselves, where is my heart divided? Living in this beautiful part of the world, for me, as I've sat in this passage, I've noticed the gods of comfort and material security beckoning my heart. If I'm honest, I can feel entitled to a certain picture of comfortable family life. That's one example. What other gods of this age are whispering in our ears? Is it the god of romance or of indulgence or family? Whatever it is that beckons you to divide your heart, let's hear from Ezra today that repentance involves turning away. Because even forgiven sin has ongoing ripple effects in our lives and others. What could that look like for you? The stats tell me that pornography is a really big issue in our world and really normal in our society. If that's a struggle for you, what could it mean to both confess that sin and run away from it? Not saying you'll always nail it, but repentance might involve radically changing your relationship to your devices, even if it means missing out on other things. Or if you're convicted that perhaps the material comfort of your family has been winning out over their walk with Jesus, it might mean not neglecting your family, but making some bold changes to your priorities and calendars? What are you willing to let go of so that you can be more faithful to Jesus? The Bible sheds light on the darkest corners of our lives. It's a beautiful but terrifying thing. And the best and most reasonable thing that any of us can do when that happens is tremble before the ever-faithful God, which leads us to the heart of things. Let's go back to chapter 9, verse 3, and watch Ezra respond to the news about this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. 
Here is an honest man, non-defensive, grieved by the human heart's capacity to turn from its maker. Let's just note a few of the striking moments in his prayer. First, verse 5, when Ezra hears of the unfaithfulness out there, his first response is to look in the mirror. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads. He knows that sin is not just an individual thing. Even though he hasn't been directly involved, he knows he's not made of better stuff than those who have. Imagine if our first reaction when we hear of the terrible things happening out there was to look inside and to think, how have I contributed to this? And to pray, God have mercy on us. What could that mean for the challenges our church family faces? To pray, not Lord fix them, but God help us. Second, Ezra knows the grace of his God. Verse 8, But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. This whole episode tells us something amazing about God. After generations of stubbornness and dragging his name through the mud, God sent his people off to exile. But now he's given a remnant a future, knowing full well that they have not gotten their lives back on track. There's nothing they've done to deserve that relief. So whoever you are, whatever baggage you're carrying today, Please know that God is ready to take you as you are. Knowing that kindness doesn't lead to complacence is the reason Ezra trembles. You haven't abandoned us, God. We have abandoned you. So God's grace forms his resolve in verse 14. Shall we then break your commands again? And finally, Ezra leaves it in the hands of a just and merciful God. Verse 15, Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. It's interesting to notice that there are no requests in Ezra's prayer. Just, you are kind You are just, we can't stand before you. My God, I'm leaving it in your court. And so this strange and wonderful book ends on a note of trembling. It'll be another 450 years until we see how God answered this prayer and every trembling confession when the perfect Son of God took on flesh and walked among an unholy people people he loved and in his humiliating death Jesus took on the role that Ezra the priest only hinted at he owned the sins of his people sins in which he had played no part at the cross we see God's mercy and his justice meet head on 
in the nails in the tomb, we see God's righteous anger in action. He doesn't leave faithlessness unpunished. But in the scars of his risen son, we see the tender mercy of God. That he would take that upon himself so that we could go free. So people who don't have a leg to stand on can stand before the holy God with our confessions and our quiet confidence. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We really need to cultivate a heart that trembles before this ever faithful God. Until we know the humiliation, the grief, the inadequacy that Ezra felt, we can't fathom the relief, the joy, the freedom of the cross. And that posture of humble repentance won't come to us naturally if we're taught by the world around us, which we all are, where forgiveness has been reduced to saying, it wasn't your fault. Our Saviour invites us to stand before him with our guilt and know what real blood-bought forgiveness is. So let's not shy away from those uncomfortable places. Let's learn to bring those things to our Father like Ezra did and say, here we are in our guilt. And here in reply, the words Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. As we nurture that healthy sense of trembling before God, we can help each other as we talk and pray and confess our shortcomings together. But most of all, Ezra invites us to stand before the God of mercy. Have you been unsettled as we've looked at this passage? I definitely have. As we've thought about holiness and faithfulness and love and marriage, has it hit some nerves? Maybe you've been hoping that this sermon won't touch on that issue in your life. As a forgiven sinner myself, the last thing I want to do is hit nerves out of insensitivity or ignorance. But I do hope that God's word has shed some light on all of our lives and maybe even caused us to tremble so that in his kindness we might stand before God grieving, humbled, confident because he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. What are we going to remember about Ezra? Something I'll take away is it's a book that faces reality, the good, the bad, the ugly, the bureaucratic, and in the mess of all that, the unflappably good, holy, generous God who lets us face those realities with hope. If you're here today exploring and relatively new to the Bible, you are starting in one of the trickiest and maybe even least attractive parts of the Bible. Thank you for making it this far. I hope you've been struck by the real human questions of this book. But more than that, maybe that you've seen a viable way to face your regrets and shortcomings and stand. Not by minimizing or pointing the finger, but by coming, yes, even with trembling, 
to the ever-faithful, ever-kind God who is determined to live with his precious people. I thought one of the best ways we could finish a passage like this was to come to the cross of Jesus where God's answer to our trembling is found. So I'm going to invite the rest of the band up and we're going to lead us in a song um, to sing together. And it's really a chance out loud or just in your own heart to do some business with your saviour.